0: this is masters in business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio
1: so I have a funny story about my guest this week um, you probably know who he is his name is Gary Schilling he's an economist he's all over television and and print and everything he's he's his background he essentially built the economics department at Merrill Lynch he was Merrill's first chief economist um, and we we get into a few stories about that but I have I have a really Amusing story that we just didn't get to um, in in our conversation. So I have at various times spoken at different events, and and this was an event that was down in the Caribbean. Um, and uh, they have a lineup of different people: this economist, that market strategist, and you you sing for your supper, you you speak for an hour or two, and then you get to play in the Caribbean for a few days. So. It's a good deal for everybody. And by coincidence, I'm on a catamaran with my wife and Gary Schilling and Gary's wife. And uh, we're going out to do a little diving, a little snorkeling. Um, I want to say it was Anguilla or Antigua, and I never remember which is which. But, you know, at a certain point, all those islands, they're beautiful. It's sunny. The water is gorgeous. And it's hard to tell where you are when you're on a boat for a week or so. So we go out to the dive location and it's a bright sunny day and everything is marked underwater. It's 20 feet. It's 30 feet. It's crystal clear waters. And I have a tendency to, to even when snorkeling, to like to try and dive deep and and look at stuff. Um, And so all of a sudden a storm comes in out of nowhere. We come up from underwater and it's absolute from bright blue skies, skies to totally gray, can't see anything, can't see more than 10 feet. The boat, which was 50 yards off in that direction, is gone. And I'm a pretty good swimmer, and my wife is starting to panic. What are we going to do? We're stuck here, and I'm like, well, we have two choices. It's the Caribbean. These storms blow in and out in 30 seconds. We could just tread water here and let it pass. Or I'm pretty sure the boat is that way. I have good. I have a really good sense of direction, and I said, um, "Look, see where the see where these markings are on the floor, and where the entrance to this dive site is. Straight line back. That that's where the boat is. So we we could wait here for five minutes, wait for this to pass, so we could go back to the boat." She goes, "Take us back to the boat." Okay, so she grabs onto my waistband, and I swim back to the boat, um, or at least where I think the boat is. And uh, we're swimming for about seven minutes. And lo and behold, oh, look, there's the outline of a sail. Oh, that's the catamaran. There's the boat. And of course, by the time we get to the catamaran, the skies are clearing. But meanwhile, I assumed it was just myself and my wife swimming back to the boat. We look back, there's a line of 40 people following us, including Gary Schilling and his wife. It was um, a little nerve-wracking for people who either aren't good swimmers or or tend to panic a little bit. And so we all get back on the catamaran, and all of us, uh, the cat then takes us to a cove where the water is three feet deep, and we all get rip-roaringly drunk and spend a few hours stumbling along the beach. So that was the first time I spent any time with... uh, Gary Schilling we've since remained friendly and um I've always enjoyed him and his wife they're they're fascinating lovely people and every year he sends a, a batch of honey uh to friends and family that he raises himself we spend a lot of time talking about beekeeping which is pretty uh hilarious conversation um without further ado here is my chat with economist Gary Schilling
0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ridholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, my special guest is Gary Schilling, an economist and proprietor of the A. Gary Schilling newsletter, and Economic Forecast. A little background about Gary, got a degree in physics cum laude, magna cum laude, from Amherst College before getting a master's and a Ph.D. in economics at Stanford, ended up on the research staff of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco before going on to set up the economics department at a little shop called Merrill Lynch, where he served as the firm's first chief economist. Wow, that's an amazing uh, piece of history. Author of the book, The Age of Deleveraging, twice ranked as Wall Street's top economist according to Institutional Investor. And a legendary beekeeper, Gary, welcome to Bloomberg. Very glad to be with you. So Gary and I know each other for quite a few years. We'll we'll talk about some of our adventures together. Uh, but let's start with the beginning. So physics, right? And I keep talking to people on Wall Street with a physics background. How do you go from physics with from that to a, a, both a master's and a doctorate in economics at Stanford?
0: Well- I, I like the discipline of physical sciences, and uh, there is a there is a yearning for closure on things. You you want to fit things together. It isn't just kind of a flash here, a flash there. You want to see how things come out in terms of a, of a total and take some
1: variables, the, put them into a formula, and well, actually it, derive it, yeah, a conclusion.
0: It's, it's, it's that's a little oversimplified, but but the whole idea is that there is a uh, there's a discipline to any any uh, uh, natural science, uh, physics, chemistry, math, all these things. Uh, they they don't have quite the fuzziness that economics has. Now, you get into economics and, you know, economic forecasting is an art. It's not a science. But mm-hmm. that discipline, uh, I think, is important because it, it kind of keeps you on the straight and narrow. Uh, but anyway, I started off there and then uh, my senior year – I had an attack of common sense and decided I wasn't cut out to be a research physicist, so I
1: had a similar epiphany in my senior year. And
0: so I decided to uh, move on, and um, uh, you know it's one of these one of these great developments where um, I was thinking about going to graduate school in economics, and I talked to Amherst it was a small school, about a thousand students at the time, and talked to the president of the of the college, and he suggested business school and a couple of other people, and I talked to the head of the Economics department who I'd happen to have when I had an elementary economics course and the sections were taught not by graduate students because there were none but by the faculty and and uh, we talked about it and he suggested a couple of places and then he said well, what's your academic record and and I told him and he said oh you can get anywhere you want to go where do you want to go and I said well I grew up in Ohio. I'm here in Massachusetts. I've been an allergic since birth. I'd like to get into a decent climate, <laughs> and and he said, "Well, how about Stanford?" And I said, "The climate's fine. How about the how about the economics department?" He's always one of the top two or three in the country. So he called up, set it up. I really? got a I got a, a a teaching assistantship, a resident assistantship. I never filled out an application. It was one of these things where somebody really did something for it, for me. We all have that going out went out of his way and. Well, as they say, the rest is history.
1: That's that's fantastic. So, from, phys- from physics to Stanford, you end up working in Standard Oil, now ExxonMobil. Correct. How did that come about, and how did you go from there to
0: finance? Well, it was interesting. Uh, at that time, uh, when I came out of Stanford, there, uh, my wife and I were would like to have stayed on the West Coast. I met her; she was a physiology major at, at Stanford, and. Uh, or in a graduate, in the graduate and school. And, sure. you know. and uh, But there were only three places a PhD economist could work in the Bay Area. One was uh, the, the uh, San Francisco Fed, and I spent a, a summer there, and that was a pretty laid-back place. Uh-huh. The second one was Bank of America, when it was Bank of America, California, uh, the Giannini uh, uh, or, or an origination. And uh, they sponsored my, uh, my PhD research and that wasn't really quite active enough. And the third one was Stanford Research in- Institute, and they didn't pay anything.
1: Right.
0: So I told my wife there were two things I'd never, never do. One is work in New York, and the other is getting to work. Well, that was the beginning of a great forecasting career because I took a <laughs> job as an economist with Standard Oil, New Jersey, now ExxonMobil, as you pointed out, Barry. And uh, well, the rest of the story is we lived in a New York apartment for two years, moved to the suburbs, Commuted for 25 years, but in 1990, I moved our shop out to suburban New Jersey, and it's a mere coincidence, it's 1.4 miles from our house in Short Hills, New Jersey.
1: Just just by coincidence. So let's talk a little bit about your time on Wall Street. You not only were the first economist, chief economist for Merrill Lynch, you actually set up their entire economics department. Yeah,
0: that, that's an interesting story, because at that point, uh, the bond houses on Wall Street had economists. Uh, Henry Kaufman was at Solomon Brothers, Al Wojnar at First Boston, Len Santow at uh, Aubrey G. Lampson. Uh, but and, Merrill was known as but, a, a stock house yeah, but, back yeah, then. I, was, I think I was the first economist at a stock house, mm-hmm. Merrill Lynch. And and uh, at that point, economists were, were relatively new. I, I can remember uh, Bill Freud, who was the economist for the New York Stock Exchange, remains a good friend. Uh, and he would have what he called Freud, Freud's friends all the economists from Wall Street over for monthly lunches at the New York Stock Exchange. And we all fit in comfortably in one of those wonderful ornate rooms. There couldn't have been more than 20 of us. Now, how many dozens, hundreds of economists are there on Wall Street?
1: Make, makes a lot of sense. Perhaps it it is part of uh, the reason we obsess so much on the day-to-day economic data that seems to come out. It, I recall a less of an emphasis on that 10, 20 years ago than we see currently.
0: Well, and of course, there's a difference too. the data then. I mean, at that point, every economist would have a couple of research assistants. You get the data by mail. They would laboriously draw these charts. There were, <laughs> there were, you know, hardly any computers. There was no, there were no uh, copy machines. I mean, uh, it was uh, and of course that made you think a lot more.
1: You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Gary Schilling, an economist and essentially physicist uh, who produces his own economic research and forecasts. We were discussing earlier that you had helped set up the research department at Merrill Lynch, and you were their chief economist. You also, their first chief economist, you also have the distinction of being the only person to be fired not once- but twice by Donald Regan from Merrill Lynch. Tell us how that came about. I went
0: there in 1967, and there had not been a recession in the U.S. really since uh, 1960, 61. Uh, Now, I forecast a recession for 69, 70, which did occur, but it was so different from Merrill Lynch because Merrill Lynch at that point, it was buy listed stocks only. That was the whole rationale of the firm. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a recession was very upsetting. So Don Regan, who was running the place and I had a difference of opinion, right. obviously he won. <laughs> I took my entire staff, left, ended up at White Weld, another Wall Street house, with no idea in nineteen seventy eight Merrill Lynch would buy White Weld. So the story in the street, which is literally true, was Schilling's the only guy fired twice by Don Regan. So, so wait, that, you come uh,
1: back to you come back to Merrill when they buy White Weld. Yeah. yeah. And how does the second <laughs> firing come about? Well, Did, I mean, another recession
0: forecast. No, that was automatic. As a matter of fact, I found out later that <laughs> that when when Reagan, the first meeting between Don Regan and Paul Hallingby, who was head of White Well, that that Regan said. Uh, if we get together, I want I want it known that there's one employee of White Weld who will not be invited to join the combined firm. Oh. So I was out from <laughs> I was That's out before hilarious. I got in. So, but anyway, that was the inducement to do what I really had in mind, which was set up my own firm.
1: La- launch your own firm. So before we go to that, I want to talk about life at a big shop in the late sixties or seventies. What was it like as a chief economist at Merrill Lynch back in the day?
0: it was It was a lot of fun in, 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 in many ways. Uh, they had a very good uh, sales staff, particularly the institutional salesmen. These guys were hungry for input. I was very uh, willing to trot all over the world, uh, not only the US, but Europe and, and Japan. And, uh, and it was it was great working for these guys. Of course, they, were, they, would, uh, they would really get their money's worth. I remember one one salesman, Minneapolis. Uh, where this guy had scheduled uh, meetings with institutions every hour on the hour throughout the day. I went to the lunch meeting um, and uh, I get, I get my fork ready for the first uh, bite of lunch. And he says, well, Gary, tell us about the economy. And so the uh, the, the entree comes and goes, the goes comes and goes. We rush out there to the next one, and I say, wait a minute, I didn't get anything to eat. He says, don't worry, I got a sandwich. You can eat it on the elevator on the way down. <laughs> but,
1: so they kept you hopping as oh a yeah. uh, uh, as an adjunct to institutional sales. <clears throat> so you leave uh, Merrill almost the second time and set up your own shop. You have your own models and your own forecasting setup that you put together. <clears throat> Let, let's talk a little bit about the economy and economic indicators and what goes into your process, right. what do you think are the most important economic indicators? What do you follow and think has the most resonance?
0: Well, let me say this, Barry, just, just going into this, that as I mentioned earlier, forecasting, in my view, is an art. It's not a science. Now, I was trained as, a, as an econometrician. When I got to Stanford, I'd had, you know, if you're a physics major, you're a math major too, whether you want to be or not. Right. And I was working there under Ken Arrow, Nobel Prize winner, econometrician, and and I'd had only one undergraduate economics course. So the the math side, the econometric side was easy. The economic stuff I had to learn, but I have found less and less interest in these big models. They simply do not work. They, they they blow up. They they produce nonsensical Why solutions. is that?
1: Are they too complex or are the underlying They're, assumptions I, false? You know, that's
0: a very good question, and I don't think anybody has really ever completely answered that. But, but I thought they, I just did. But, they, but the problem <laughs> is you have to keep going in and plugging in, uh, and by the time you get all through, you might as well do it from, from, uh, from scratch. But at that time, there was this hope that somehow you could devise a model of the economy it would be unsullied by human hands you put in the inputs and out comes the solution and that's all you need to, to know. So now forecasting in my view is a whole combination of things and it really can't be quantified uh, in any in precise way. It's uh, certainly looking at various leading indicators. what's the federal what, reserve, what leading indicators the Federal reserve doing or not doing uh, What's the state of consumers? Uh, right now, we think we're in this age of deleveraging, working off excess debt from the 80s and 90s. And that, you know, I put out this book, The Age of Deleveraging in 2010. And I said, I thought we were going to have 2% real GDP growth. And, of course, the Fed and, and most people said, oh, no, it's going to pick up. Well, where are we? 2.2% since this recovery started in the middle of 09. But it's, it's, looking at, it's looking at history. It's Kentucky windage. It's it's a whole Kentucky host of things. Kentucky windage. Yeah. What is Kentucky windage? That's... that's that's a uh, that's a Midwestern term for hunches. Okay, <laughs> Kentucky windage. I I like that. <laughs> well, that's that's when you're shooting, you know. And those guys were really sharp. They were really so. They're sharp. just taking sure. a guess. Well, as you have the to know, you them. have to know the wind because a wind pushes the bullet a little bit. Oh yeah, I left or right. In fact, I talked to a friend of mine who was a trained as a sniper, and I called him up after I seen this movie. The, you know the American, American sniper. sniper. Sure, and and I asked him about that, and he explained that that shot that guy made when he took out the bad guy he said that was impossible because this sandstorm was the coming up. The yard. thousand yards. Well, and and with the with the winds going in right. and out of the buildings, it would it would cause the bullet to drift, and even even with all the power of that uh, fifty caliber fifty caliber rifle, you're uh, still going to get. Uh, some yeah, he gift. said it, he, that shot was. I, not I have a t
1: shirt I have to dig up somewhere a buddy gave me who was a marine sharpshooter. Yeah. Their logo, their their tagline was, "Why run? You'll only die tired." These guys are serious, <laughs> serious shooters, and they calculate all that stuff. Everything from <laughs> from curvature of the earth to wind drift. It's all it's all part of it. Oh yeah. So let's hold off discussing the economy itself to a later segment. Let's talk a little bit about what goes into some of the these models and what goes into some of the forecasts. What do you look at? So you mentioned interest rates. You mentioned consumer spending what other factors do you think are really
0: significant? Well what's what's also very impo- uh, important is what is the consensus saying because I, uh, I in am, order to in order to push
1: back against or yeah, to see where they're yeah, wrong
0: yeah uh, I have two basic principles that' have always been guided me. One is that is that uh, uh, human nature changes very slowly over time so people react to similar circumstances in similar ways in others history is relevant. Now, you still have to find the right piece of history. Mark Twain says history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And the second one is that you don't add value by rehashing the consensus. It doesn't mean you are contrarian and then you buck the consensus regardless. Where we agree, we pass over it lightly, but where we find something that's important is is likely to happen because you're judged by your forecasting record ultimately. And third is not yet within the purview of the consensus. That's where we really get interested. This week on
1: Masters in Business, I'm speaking with economist Gary Schilling, uh, noted author and forecaster um, and physicist, for that matter, as well as an economist. Right out of school, you spent some time in the San Francisco Federal Reserve Office. What was that experience like?
0: Well, it was really at that point uh, deciding that at least at that, at that time, it was a pretty sleepy operation. Uh, so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what indicators led the stock market. Mm-hmm. Well, that was, that was a, 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 a I thought stu- that, should be the, that the was way a around. stupid exercise because you know, you, you think about it, uh, the stock market tends to lead almost anything else. And if you could find something that consistently led the stock market, Hey, you'd make a fortune. Right. <laughs> so that, that was, but that was a learning experience. That, that's what happens when you're young and naive.
1: So let me ask you a related question then. What, what indicators do people tend to obsess about that really don't matter all that
0: much? Well, it, it, it changes over time, but right now the Fed is is pretty much irrelevant in, in my view. I mean, you're looking at a period where where the Fed has, has pushed out all this money, quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. It hasn't done much good. Why is that? Well, it's very simple. Uh, basically, that money got into circulation and People use it to buy assets stocks right but stocks are owned principally by high income people who don't right. adjust their spending much in relation to their assets you got three cars in the driveway you're not going to put a fourth one in there so it never got beyond that and it didn't do much to help the basic economy uh, it's uh, the pushing on a string the Keynesian liquidity trap you can use all the technical terms right but basically the Fed is in my view is is pretty much irrelevant and also of course in this slow growth period um, the Fed keeps pushing off the day that they're going to raise rates. They're now a lot more concerned with the rest of the world. Their charter is, is strictly domestic, full employment and price stability. But they obviously now are expanding that because the rest of the world, is it is a global economy. But I think all in all, the Fed is, is pretty impotent right now. It doesn't make much difference what they do.
1: So what has been the impact of zero interest rate policy? What's been the impact of, of QE on the overall economy?
0: The effect of QE on the overall economy has been surprisingly little. To say it has pushed up asset prices, but you haven't gotten the multiplier effect. Normally right. when the Fed gives the banks a dollar in reserves, by lending and relending in what's called a fractional reserve system, they turn it into seventy dollars of M two money. Seventy. Right. This point seventy seven zero to one. That's seventy the to one, right. Now it's one point four to one. So barely moving at Barely up. moving. Uh and, and and so it really hasn't hasn't had much hasn't had much effect. Uh, so, so the Fed the Fed is really really I think uh, uh, pretty much on the uh, sidelines. And and the other thing about uh, quantitative easing is that the effects of this lower interest rates it's created a lot of distortions, uh, a lot mm-hmm. of zeal for yield. You see the rush into leveraged loans, into emerging market debt and equity, into uh, into uh, commodities, into hedge funds, and so on. Pension funds still uh, still cling to the idea of 8% returns on their portfolios. They say, we can't get that in conventional stocks and bonds. We're going to get it some way. So they move out on the risk curve. And I think a lot of them have moved a lot further out on the risk curve than they realized.
1: I I still don't understand where this 8% number has come from. It seems like they've made that number up and that they had to, they want 8%. Look, in order to maintain a tax deferred status, it's 5% is what you have to, put out. So I don't know where this number came from. I think from.
0: maybe Barry was 5% plus 3% for inflation. There you go. Uh, but,
1: but, but you don't have inflation or, like you that. Know, you know,
0: you haven't got any inflation. But of course, the other thing is if they start lowering that number, then they have to lower the other side, the discounting rate for the future liabilities, the punch of mm-hmm. payments to bring it back to the, to the present value. And that greatly increases, you know, the lower the interest rate you're discounting with, that greatly expands their, the uh, current value of those liabilities. So they get hit on both sides. So there's a huh. great reluctance to to face reality. To, to be honest about what they should really be expecting that's right. post-crisis. That's correct. That's correct.
1: That, that, that's quite fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about what should have been done following the financial crisis. What should Congress have done? What should the Federal Reserve have done in response to, you know, the collapse in asset prices and and GDP and, and jobs.
0: Well, bailing out Wall Street probably was necessary because we very well could have had a full blown uh, financial meltdown. What
1: about uh, bailing out the bondholders when we when we talk about these bailouts? Yeah. A lot of bad bonds were paid out. A hundred. Yeah, cents that's right. Dollar. And
0: I I think that that really has prolonged the agony. I, I think they probably went too far on this whole process. tear the aid off, let some bad debt yeah, go. and they and they really have way overrated themselves in terms of what they can do. Look, look at the, look at the whole effects. trillion dollar deficits, huge quantitative easing, and what do we get? Two percent real GDP growth. I mean, it's telling you that these forces of deleveraging are so great they're overpowering this, and these guys who constantly think that policy is going to is going to overwhelm everything else, and they're going to get the results they want. I think they're in a dream world.
1: You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Dr. Gary Schilling. He is an economist, uh, researcher, forecaster. Let's talk a little bit about the present economy. Where are we in the economic cycle?
0: I'm not sure we're in a conventional economic cycle, and of course, everybody wishes wishes we were. Everybody yearns for the idea of a, of a very systematic cycle. And you can say, where are you? I go out and I see presentations. A lot of the big banks have their representatives out, and they say, oh, here's a circle, and here's where we are, and that. Uh, it, it, I don't think we're in that kind. Of, I don't think we're in that kind of world right now. We're going through this massive deleveraging. or We're seeing slow growth. We're seeing commodity prices decline. We're seeing the strength in the dollar. Uh, We're seeing competitive devaluations against the dollar. Uh, there's a lot of things going on here that I don't think give you a very clear idea of a cycle per se. And and one thing I think is, is you know, there's this yearning for nostalgia. We all have that. Mm-hmm. And and forecasters are just as subject to this as anybody else. And you always have this feeling, oh, boy, if we could get back to the days when it was a nice cycle, and I know that it's four years. And If I could weigh
1: 175 pounds, I'd yeah, be thrilled yeah, to yeah, death.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and, and, equal, and people talk about equilibrium. Hey, I've been in this business a long time, Barry, and equilibrium is something you simply pass through on the way to going to excesses on the top or the bottom. That's exactly it right. It doesn't exist. Fair
1: value you exist at
0: very briefly oh, as yeah. you're swinging. And only in retrospect. <laughs>
1: that, that's right. So along those lines, let me ask you a um, let me ask you a related question. I know you're a historian. I know you look at a lot of economic data from days gone by. Is there any period in history that's comparable to what we're living through now? Um
0: that's a good question uh, at times when you're working off excesses I suppose you could say that to a certain extent that's what was going on in the in the 1930s mm-hmm. uh, but post Great Depression yeah, or yeah. even in the great post yeah that was the Great Depression in the aftermath but there were a lot of other things going on there mm-hmm. a complete shift in in policy from basically a laissez faire to, to much more government involvement in the economy whether that helped or hurt uh, you know historians argue about that. I, I don't think there is a. I don't think there is a period right now where you can you can point to it and say let's follow the script. That does that does happen from time to time, and mm-hmm. I'm always looking for those periods because. But this is unique. You're saying. Yeah, I, I don't today. see. I don't see the relevance of that can, right now. Can
1: you say this is unprecedented? There's nothing. Well, else. at least
0: in I think in in uh, experience of of modern economic forecasting, it
1: mm-hmm. is. So, um, I know you're a big bond bull and have been for a long time. 34 years. (laughs) 34-year bull market in bonds showing no sign of ending. Uh, Where are we in this bond? Is the
0: bond bull market still alive? Yeah, 1981, the yield on the 30-year treasury was 15.21%. And I said in writing, we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime because I saw inflation unwinding. And with lower inflation, that would push down yields, push up bond prices. And, and I think we're still in that. I mean, yields now uh, obviously have dropped a tremendous a tremendous amount. They're more like three per, a little over th- under 3% for the 30-year bond. I think we're going to go to 2%. now. Somebody on says, the 30-year bond? Yeah, on the 30-year bond. That's now, amazing. Now, somebody says, well, I mean, what's, you know, what does that do for you? And who would accept 3% yield? I couldn't care less what the yield is. I never have as long as it's going down. Because that means the price of the bonds is going right. up. And when you look at the convexity of this whole thing, if if I'm right and you go from essentially 3% to 2% on a 30-year uh, coupon bond, you make 30% on your money, which I think is going to be a lot better than, than whatever is, is in second place.
1: And my mortgage is going to drop to, to 2.9%. That, what does that do for housing? What does that do for other th- items purchased with uh, debt?
0: Well, of course, the question is, under what circumstance does that happen? If you're mm-hmm. in a very low inflationary environment, if you're in a slow, slow growth. growth, yeah, sure. Yeah. If you're in a slow growth environment, it, it has other characteristics. I mean, you look at housing. You mentioned housing. Housing, this recovery has been basically a rental market. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has not been new homeowners that normally are the basis of housing. They're the people that buy the starter houses from people that then move up the ladder, next rung on the ladder and on up. In, in housing, not uh, really
1: happening this no, time. No,
0: because people they don't have the incomes, uh they don't have the credit scores. Uh, they they and and of course it's become you know it's uh, it's become a a virtue of, as as out of necessity. People, oh, I really don't want a house of my own. I don't want the responsibility. I'd rather live in a more urban environment. Chicken and egg there, right. uh, uh, You know which way is the causality? But my.
1: my- friend Jonathan Miller who's been on the show who oh yeah, r- right right well, yeah, does does a lot of interesting appraisal analysis said that there are so many people with either low equity, no equity or negative equity that a huge pool of inventory that's normally for sale isn't on the market and a huge pool of potential buyers aren't participating so you have <laughs> few buyers and even fewer houses yeah available. and
0: there are a lot of people you know it's just like stocks the idea of they take a beating a stock and they say i won't sell it till i get out even it's irrational because the market is whatever the market is today mm-hmm. but i think there is that there is that uh, pool of of uh, people who own houses they bought them they're underwater and they're basically saying yeah i want to sell but i can't get out from under it and of course some people they have uh you know, they, they, they're upside down. The they, mortgage is worth more than the house. Mm-hmm. So uh, if they sell it, they've got they've got financial problems.
1: Just to say the least, it also depends if you're in a recourse or a non-recourse state, if you can walk away or not, or if you can talk your bank into renegotiating the total uh, amounts uh, under a number of the HAMP and TAMP
0: programs. Oh, sure. It, it, oh, sure. It's, or you can pretty... do a short sale where you basically sell it to market and the lender forgives the difference. I mean there are all kinds of variations. So
1: what do you see happening in housing over the next couple of years?
0: Well I I think I think housing is is probably going to limp along here but I, I don't see anything really pushing it. I mean I mean, we're the we're the most overhoused uh, country in the world, huh. possible exception, maybe Spain. I mean, the National Association of Realtors would never tell you that. But Well, it's but always we, a good time to
1: buy or sell a house, according to them. Yeah, yeah.
0: I remember an ad they had back in the right. week that said, it's a great time to buy. It's a great time to sell it. It's and, always a great time. Did you have to, it both ways? Right. Always
1: a great time to generate a sales commission. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you got it, man. Um, yeah. So let's talk about energy, because you've said some really interesting things about energy, Oil prices have dropped, cut in half over the past year. I
0: understand you talked about $20 a barrel oil. Yeah, well, here's the rationale. Uh, OPEC is a cartel. Cartels exist to keep prices above equilibrium. That's the whole purpose. Mm-hmm. That encourages cheating. Somebody wants more than their share, either in the cartel, OPEC, or outside. Uh, Russia, American frackers, uh, whoever. So the leader of the cartel's responsibility is to cut its own production to accommodate the cheaters, to avoid a price collapse. Well, OPEC's been doing that for years, but they're getting tired of it. In the last 10 years, OPEC production has been flat, and all the growth has come in non-OPEC sources, a lot of it recently from American, from American mm-hmm. frackers. So the Saudis and their, and their uh, uh, colleagues in the Persian Gulf, back uh, November 27th, when we were sitting down to our Thanksgiving turkeys, they decided they weren't going to cut. They basically said we're going to play. It. We're going to play an elaborate game of chicken. We got about 500 billion dollars in foreign currency reserves, and we're going to see. We're going to see who can take lower prices the longest. OPEC production was 30, 30 million barrels a day. They took off. Basically, took off the quotas. It's now 31 and a half million barrels a day. So you say, okay, now how low do prices go before somebody chickens out? Some major producer says, I've had it. Uncle. I've got to cut back. <laughs> it isn't the cost of meeting budgets. That's irrelevant here. Okay, maybe it, maybe Venezuela is $150 a barrel. That's irrelevant. It isn't even the full, full cycle cost. In other words, the cost of drilling the hole, laying the pipes, the overhead, and so on. No, 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 no. When you're a price war, it's the marginal cost. It's mm-hmm. the cost once the pipes are, are laid, the oil is, is, is coming out of the ground. In other words, where does your free cash flow disappear? And in the Permian bases in Texas and in the Persian Gulf, that's in the $10 to $20 a barrel range. So that's how I get to that number. So you
1: can actually see oil fall down to twenty-five or so dollars a barrel, and they're still making five or more dollars for each barrel they that's pull right. out of the ground. That's right.
0: In other words, they they may be losing money on a full on a full cost basis, but in terms of the marginal cost, in other words, you know, they still have positive cash flow on a marginal basis. So that, that's the incentive to keep producing. And now, you know, price goes down there, it doesn't stay there forever. But you've got but to you get to the point that you have major production that disappears from the system. And we haven't seen that. There's no, still the world th- is awash in oil. Oh, sure. Today. Oh, sure. I so mean, you know, you're, you're producing about 2 million barrels a day more than demand right now. There are ships floating inventory. around
1: filled with oil sure, and no place sure, to drop sure. it off. Yeah, that's that, right. That, that's quite fascinating. So, normally when you talk about oil prices dropping from over $100 to $20, $25, we would be talking about a recession.
0: You, do you see a recession any time in the next 12 months? I don't see the making of a recession. Uh, you have recessions, uh, at least historically, for two reasons. One is the Fed raises interest rates to choke off what they see as an overheating economy. Now, they, they may have painted themselves into a corner here. They've been yelling and screaming about raising rates. They're crying wolf an awful lot. Their credibility is at stake. They may raise rates simply to preserve credibility, but uh, the kind of interest rate, like they did in '94, where they went up 300 basis points on on uh, Fed funds in six months or so, I don't see that. So the other possibility of recession is a is, is some kind of a shock. Right. That's what we had with a collapse in dot-com stocks in the late '90s. That was a housing uh, in in the in the mid 2000s. Maybe China. So in the last Maybe minute China. we have,
1: you you reading my mind, what's the potential impact of China on the global economy?
0: Well, the reality of China is that it's nothing has really changed there except perceptions. China basically is not a leader. It's not a self-led comp, uh, country. China imports raw materials and equipment and use it to manufacture goods that they send to North America and, and Europe.
1: So their activity follows the That's rest right. the world. They are dependent economic on activity. that. Of course
0: they have infrastructure spending as well. But but the point is that China it's the perception of China with a collapse in, in stock prices and the devaluation, people are suddenly saying, Oh my God, China isn't really independently growing. They haven't been for years, but perceptions have reality. And will that have enough follow-on consequences with effects on commodity prices and currencies and other developing countries? That's 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 what's there. And that's if there is a recession out there in the next 12 months or so, I think that's probably where it would would be generated.
1: Thank you to my guest, Gary Schilling, for spending so much time with us. Be sure and check out our podcast extras where we continue the conversation. Check out my daily column on Bloombergview.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Okay, so this is the podcast portion of the show where I stop worrying about the time segments and we could chat about anything. Okay. Before, and I know I have to get you out of here at a certain time, but that'll be easy. Before <laughs> we start as, talking about some other the questions that we've missed and some other stuff, these are all my questions. I have to ask you about the beekeeping. You're you're famous on Wall Street for for being a beekeeper and mailing out honey. To various people as as holiday presents, yeah, yeah, including yeah. myself, I have I have a uh, a tub of honey, and I believe the ins- and you have a different inscription every year, and the one oh, yeah. that stands out was the Fed's funny money can't buy this honey.
0: Yeah, this year uh, as Treasury bonds soar, our bees make more. There you go. <laughs> we always try to find something topical and usually related to the financial sector. How, how on earth did you get into beekeeping? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, I've got uh, – we live in suburban New Jersey, and we, I have a bunch of drawer fruit trees around our premises, and I didn't think they were getting pollinated properly. Uh, and I had this – Based on I, what? What makes you wake up one day and say, I'm not sure our fruit trees are being of properly – Lots of blossoms and not that m- much Not fruit. a lot of fruit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. All right. Very simple road test. Anyway, uh, I had this romantic idea of putting in some beehives, and my wife kept saying, come on, this is, this is, this is no farm. This is suburbia. Well, then our third son, who was an animal lover since birth, did his senior college thesis on bees, and that's all it took to push me over the edge. So one afternoon when my wait, wife— Wait, wait,
1: wait. He does his, the- his college thesis unprompted from you, unprovoked? Uh, on, uh, yeah. Just no, complete nothing, coincidence. No, totally
0: independent. Totally independent. No, I, there was no leading the witness on that one. Okay. Uh, so he's doing this, and, and so— uh, uh, he and I smuggle in a couple of hives one afternoon when how my big? wife was what, out. How big? What? What's the? How physically? Well, is, uh, the hive is uh, the the box. They're vertical, essentially. Well, you stack them up. You stack right. up the boxes, but the but the box the the dimensions are are sixteen and five eighths inch, inch wide, nineteen and seven eighths inch, inch long, and they're varying depths. Mm-hmm. And I I can explain to you why they why the dimensions sure. are. Okay, this is very interesting. Bees have, have been kept since uh, time immemorial. Millennia. Uh, And uh, by the way, honey never never spoils. Never spoils, They've taken it out of ancient Egyptian tombs, which is just as good as the day the bees made it. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. I know it was
1: good for a long time. I didn't know it was good that long.
0: Now, uh, throughout this time, though, they, they had bees. They were in various cavities and so on. There's what's called a skeps. Which is a it's a series of concentric rings. If you ever seen a road, uh, Utah road sign, mm-hmm. the Beehive State, that's a skeps. You know, it's a traditional kind of those round, sort yeah, of round stacked. kind of thing. And 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 the bees would be in there, and they, when left of their own devices, uh, the bees make it has a hexagonal cells, but they the look like stalactites right. hanging down. Well, the way they harvested the honey was they basically killed the hive. Right. They would use sulfur smoke kill the hive, and then crush the combs to get the honey out well that's not well that was very inefficient because they had to have about twice as many uh twice as many uh hives as they were going to harvest uh and also after the advent of kerosene that's colonel drake drilling as well for lights there was not the need for beeswax for candles Mm -hmm. so wax and it takes about 10 times as much nectar to make a pound of wax as a pound of honey Mm -hmm. so this is very inefficient in 1851 1851. Now, honeybees are from the old, all from the old world. They came here with the European settlers. The Indians called them the white man's fly. <laughs> but a congregational preacher in Philadelphia named Lorenzo Langthroft, Lorenzo Langthroft, made a very interesting observation. He noticed that the bee, would only, the bee would only build, and it's the worker bees that do all this. The drones don't do anything. She would only build her comb within about three eighths of an inch of any other solid object, including another. Another comb, huh. so he developed from that what's called a movable frame hive. You might, you might, our our listeners sure. may have seen those these stacks where, you that have these come frames. out. Yep. In other words, he put these in there, and and the bees they 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 built they build out the wax comb, fill them with honey, put a cap on there. You can take them out, scratch off the caps, put in a centrifuge, spin them out, and put them back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now coming back to the dimensions, he's the father of modern beekeeping and those dimensions that i mentioned 16 to 5 eighths wide 19 to 7 eighths long those were the dimensions of some scrap lumber he had it wasn't a conversion from metric but he was so influential that that wow. became now it's a convenient size but the guy never made a dime out of this because it was so easy to copy that's amazing but, but it, it he, he, yeah that and and so that now and you have these these boxes are various depths there's usually two two boxes on the bottom that the bees live in year round and they have their Honey to get through the winter, <laughs> they have their uh, brood in there, and they have um, pollen, which is the nectar they feed, they feed to the larva. And those boxes, nine nine and five eighths deep, if they're full of honey, they weigh eighty five pounds. Wow! So the ones you stack up on top are called supers, and that's the honey we're going to take off. And they're not as deep, so you can lift them. Because try try lifting eighty five pounds at at uh, at at shoulder height, it's it's but, good for the t- for the uh, stomach muscles. My,
1: my dog weighs eighty five pounds. One of my dogs weigh eighty five pounds, and I know when I had to carry him, <laughs> I know eighty five pounds ain't uh, ain't yeah. easy to to lift. Um, so that's amazing. So, but you've but been, anyway, it started off. You've in, been doing uh, this how only, many
0: decades? Now? Yeah, well, it started off in nineteen ninety. And anyway, this this son Steve, he took off for a for a, a job in the Eurodollar pits in the Chicago Merc. And I and and I had been I'd just been the flunky. He was a beekeeper, and it was like if you ever driven with somebody repeatedly to the same destination, they do the driving, you don't pay any attention. Right, that was me. He takes off. I'm instantly promoted to head beekeeper. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess by then we were up to about twenty hives. And I'm so, how the,
1: much space is this physically taking in the backyard?
0: Well, uh, I've got fifteen of them in our residence in Short Hills, New Jersey, and I've got about a hundred in your residence. I've got a hundred on the grounds, underground. Underground, okay. in a corner of the property. Right. Uh, and, uh, but I got about 100 hives total and, and uh, most Where of the Where are rest the rest of, of the hives? Well, the, they're more further out in Morristown, New Jersey area. And then I've got some, we have a beach house on Fire Island, some out there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but anyway, but you know, this thing very, it just keeps growing and, and it's very labor intensive. I got one- I can my, imagine. I got a guy on my staff who spends a lot of time working with me on this. You're talking and, about the bee's labor or your labor? Well, <laughs> both, but, <laughs> but- uh, I didn't intend the thing to grow, but the damn thing just keeps growing. How many pounds of honey do you generate? Well, each year? Uh, this year, this year we took off twenty five hundred pounds, and that's that's one a pound ton jar. and change of honey. Yeah, and we give it all away. Right. If I ever sold any, I'd have to keep keep uh, keep Records. the books, and I don't want to make myself no. cry because uh, t- <laughs> my time would be probably worth a quarter of an hour, and probably with a minus sign in front of it. <laughs> but it, it varies tremendously. Last year was our best year ever, fifty four hundred. Uh, pounds and we still almost have, three tons of honey. Oh yeah, we have it stacked all over the office, and and my my admin uh, Beth Grant, she keeps saying, "Come on now, we don't need this much honey." I think she really hopes we don't have a great year because she's trying to figure out where we're going to have it. So, we got it stacked all over the place.
1: So what? How has these <coughs> how how has these colony collapse diseases been impacted your hive?
0: That's probably one of the, 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 the biggest misconceptions. In 2007, 60 Minutes, the, the TV show did this uh, segment on colony collapse disorder. Right. Now, what that means is the bees leave the hive and they can't live long on their own outside. That's right. clear. They don't come back. Um, and they said this is the end, end of the world.
1: Well, it's right. actually- no, no, more, no more food pollination, yeah, right, no right. more and, this, and no more right.
0: And about a third of everything we eat depends on insect pollination, and 99 and 44, 100% of that is from honeybees. In any event, uh, they said it's the end of the world. Well, what they didn't really, they didn't do their homework, because this is a reoccurring problem. Uh, it's about every 25 years. The first observation of this country was 1869.
1: Oh, really? That's and it's, fascinating. And it's
0: on the way now. It's not the problem. But there are- but there are other serious problems. Uh, Such as? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, and as a matter of fact, they just had a huge study announced last year. All the big name USDA entomologists and the guys from the big uh, schools where they're, uh, you know, like Cornell and University of Maryland and Penn State and UC Davis and so on. And they came up with three three areas. And everybody's waiting with braided breath for what's the problem with bees? How do we get out of this? Well, the and first said, one has to be said, pesticide we, it, was what everyone was no, thinking. No, that's interesting. It isn't. Uh, no, but that's the, the first guess everybody oh yeah, is yeah. having. Uh, pesticides, they said, maybe, but they're not at all sure. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, their European counterparts were absolutely possibly convinced it was pesticides. And two months ago, these Europeans said, we're not so sure. Can't, can't find it. But that's proof. one. The second one is nutrition. Really? Farmers fence. Yeah. Farmers plant fence row to fence row, and there's not a lot of wildflowers to give bees the the nectar and pollen that they need. So what they're doing is they're encouraging. Fence
1: row to fence row, meaning it's all cash crops. Yeah, it's and all not, cash crops. Nothing decorative and, and like.
0: Most of them don't tend to have any nectar that or pollen that's interested in the bees. But what they're doing now, a lot of cases, is uh, they're encouraging they're encouraging farmers to use uh, marginal land to plant. There's, there's an outfit, for example, called uh, called Pheasants Unlimited. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in the upper Midwest, and they basically raise pheasants and quail for for hunters. And and what they do is they provide this seed to farmers, and and uh, and the uh, the nectar and pollen are is good for the bees, and then the seeds the chicks, the pheasants and the quail chicks eat it, which mm-hmm. makes them better to be harvested by the hunter. So there, are, and then there, the third. Then that, th-
1: that's fascinating because there is a farm near where I live, which is where I get my peach raspberry pies, called Young's Farm, and I noticed they have rows and rows of plantings and then along the edge which is adjacent to the street probably not harvestable they have just a whole run of of wildflowers yeah that
0: that, that's what's being done and that that's helpful but it's you know it's not on a big enough scale then the third problem which is probably most interesting is a parasitic mite called varroa v-a-r-r-o-a i read something about this now this is there there are five races of honeybees Mm -hmm. the only one that's commercially uh valuable is uh the the Latin the scientific name is Apis malafra, Apis bee malafra honey. Um, now that one orig, uh, originated. Oh, bees are all from the whole from the from the old world. This one originated in in uh, southern Europe and the Middle East. There's another race in the in the uh, Southeast Asia called Apis Serena. and this ver, this, ver- this ver- mite is indigenous uh, indigenous on Apis Serena. And apis and this this brotes hangs on the bees sucks out their colon of blood apis serena recognizes this is the bad guy and they groom them off each other they, they mm-hmm. pull them off each other it jumped over to apis malafra and, and they haven't die and they don't understand it's the bad guy huh so you uh, and and so if, one they
1: co-evolved together and that's how they managed to put whoever figured out we well, need to take this off now we see their offspring around if you didn't co-evolve you may not have developed yeah, that behavior but, or but that, now
0: they're 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 uh, right now, you've got to treat with chemicals, um, or absolutely positively, that hive will be dead in two years. Now, really? You, oh yeah, yeah. You, you don't treat until you take off the honey that we're going to eat, of course. Mm-hmm. But they're but uh, they're doing some interesting things. Monsanto has some interesting work uh, where they
1: kill the mites but leave the bees.
0: Yeah, okay. that's, I see. You're trying to kill one insect without killing another insect, right? And they're and they're using some uh, uh, genetic uh, some some genetic modifications. To basically, in effect, try to disrupt the breeding cycle of the, of the mites. Mm-hmm. That's an ex- that's an experimental stage, but that that has that's probably the the greatest thing. But this is this is a serious problem. And the thing is, these mites mutate. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the treatments that worked just beautifully ten years ago aren't worth anything because they mutated, and the ones now so, are.
1: Sounds like a uh, res- penicillin resistant. Oh, sure, uh, it, it, exactly the same, the same. It's, it's a. How did you get from? It's amazing how, first of all, you you've obviously studied this in great detail, but as an economist, I don't really think of the next logical step as well. Of course, beekeeping should be <laughs>
0: part and parcel well, with. Well, that. It, it, there there are there are there are common threads, there, Barry, and, and such as the, okay. Well, let, well let's well, see. Well, the one that is not common, but I like is it's good physical exercise, and mm-hmm. it, it, particularly on a nice day, I like to be outside. Uh, and you don't get a lot of that when you're sitting behind your desk or sure. on the lecture circuit or whatever. But you but, see the
1: distribution of labor amongst yeah. the hives. That's yeah. got to
0: be an entire. Yeah, but the other interesting thing is that this, with all these diseases and pests that have beset honeybees in the last couple of decades, it is, uh, there is a, a whole logic, uh, deductive logic sequence I go through when I open a hive. I open a hive, I'm looking, I'm listening, I'm smelling. Is there a queen there? Is she laying? If not, what do I do? I come home from a day in the in the bee yards out with the bees. I'm wrung out not only physically, but mentally. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think that, but it is. And and beekeepers tend to be above average intellect. Mm-hmm. You've got to have a natural curiosity because, and another interesting- Economists,
1: just average intellect. <laughs> so, so
0: basically,
1: you're saying that the beekeeping is a greater intellectual challenge than- no, I'm not saying it's greater but it's a That's what I'm hearing. It's, it's, I'm hearing no, no, Anyone no, no, can no, be no, an no, economist, no, but to be and, a you, beekeeper. You,
0: you, you and I know economics <laughs> is plenty, but it's 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 a, it's a divergence. It's it's a, right. it's sort of a you know, I'm the type of guy I, I always work, I just change the venue. <laughs> and, right. and, and 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 that's what it amounts to where you're you're shifting you're shifting gears to to something else, but you're still going through that that mental process of of trying to figure out what what's going on there. It's, it's like it's like the economy. You're trying to you're trying to put all that we talked about this earlier. You're trying to put all these pieces together and see where you come out, and uh, and uh, you, you never can be certain. And, and and beekeeping, hey, the vicissitudes, vicissitudes of nature are tremendous. You do everything you possibly can. It's just like a forecast. You cover all the bases, and you, you're left a certain amount of luck. Some randomness. Right. You know,
1: I just I just was speaking at a conference, and the exact same conversation came up with you do X and Y and Z, they all seem so different. And my answer was, they're really the same thing. You look at a variety of ambiguous inputs, try and figure out what matters and what doesn't, and reach a reasonable conclusion within the context. Beekeeping and economics, apparently, the same same basic, the process is what's so similar, even though it's yeah, such totally yeah, different. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that pretty that, true. That, that's quite fascinating. So. Earlier we were talking a little bit about um, what it was like when you were a researcher at Merrill Lynch and a researcher at the Federal Reserve. What what are some of your, your commentaries or, or research forecasts that you're especially proud of that really have stood the test in time or may have been unusually contrarian? What what stands out to you?
0: Well, I, I think I think the greatest call I made was this one I made in nineteen eighty one when I said- Bond in, bull market. Yeah, that we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime. and Was that and a I, lonely call? Were there other oh, people saying gosh, that? Barry, it, it was so lonely. I, I wrote my first book in 1982. Title? Uh, the, the title was, Is Inflation Ending, question mark. Are you ready, question mark. My answer to the first question, yes. Yes, inflation is ending. We're going into a period of, of uh, lower and lower inflation because my view is that government, excess spending is the root of inflation. The Fed may be the handmaiden in implementing, but it's the government spending. And we saw a revolt against government, starting with Proposition 13 in California in mm-hmm. 1978 and then Reagan's election in, in 1980. And I said from that that inflation was on the way out. And as a result, we were and, – and so the answer to the second half of the question, are you ready? No, because everybody was betting on inflation. They had all their tangibles in their portfolios. Uh, 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 coins, antiques, artwork, gold, etc. And I said, no, no, you don't have enough stocks or bonds because they will benefit from this. Now, that was a very lonely call. That book, uh, McGraw Hill, finally got it out in 1982. Nobody Pretty eat- good timing. Inf- yeah, but inflation really peaked in 1980. But nobody believed it. The sales of the book were an absolute disaster. As a matter of fact, McGraw-Hill gave us the last couple of thousand copies. They didn't want them. <laughs> but, you it was, them. but interesting, in 1986, by then it was clear that inflation was fading. Uh, there were two ex-post reviews. One was in the Boston Globe, and the other was the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. Mm-hmm. And and they both, you know, and, and both the, these business editors, they said, "I saw this book, and my God, it was happening." And they and so they wrote reviews. Well, of course, that was as handy as a pocket in your underwear because the book was long out of print. Right, but it was a pyrrhic victory. Uh, but but yeah, I mean that, that was that was very lonely. I don't think there was anybody else, uh, at least notable known forecaster, who was saying anything like that. At so the time. so let me push back <laughs>
1: about your. Your claim that it's the government spending and deficits that cause inflation—we have a 19 trillion dollar
0: federal deficit, and yet inflation is well, it, non-existent it, it, and and going lower. Yeah, it's it's uh yeah I have to uh, fill that out and say it depends on the rest of the economy. If you okay. Have, if you have an overemployed economy to start with, and then you put all that government spending on top of it, but what you see—that's what happened in the late 60s and 70s. Very is, different is today. You had. Yeah, you had uh, huge government spending on war on poverty and war in Vietnam, and that really strained resources. On top
1: of a 20-year private sector bull market following the end of World War II. It
0: generated all that inflation. Well, again, you got the reversal of that uh, starting in- So now we
1: have the retiring boomers. Yeah. We have a whole lot of underemployment, people working part-time who'd rather work full-time. What else do we have in this environment? You you have increased globalization. Well, yeah, globalization.
0: Yeah, that that's that's. Uh, I think that's been the greatest the greatest change in the last thirty years is globalization. And so let's talk about globalization, but I also <laughs> want to get to I also want to get to increased
1: productivity and increased automation as other factors that are driving this. So, what has been the impact of globalization on uh, wages,
0: both here in the U.S. and worldwide? Well, it's a great equalizer of of wages. Obviously, uh, I had a was very interesting. This goes back years ago. Uh, Milton Friedman had read one of my books. He was in San Francisco. He invited me in. He was in an apartment there. Uh, greeted me at the door. Uh, hadn't shaved in three days. Had a bathrobe on. We sat there for about three hours talking about about inflation and and wages. And of course, what year him, was this? Oh gosh, this was uh, this is about the mid '80s, mm-hmm. and and uh, his point, of course, is that that free markets govern everything; that there's nothing else. But and and uh, and and I was saying, well, you know, wages. You here, you've got twenty dollars an hour. You know, for the UAW, I think in this right. country, and two dollars an hour in Mexico. And I said, you know, you, you think these, what's are gonna gonna, these are going to These are going to equate well. They have come a lot closer, and and that's that's what's happened is that is that this is globalization, and of course you had a lot of American labor which was enjoying uh, was enjoying the fruits of basically isolation. I mean, we did not right. have global competition, but and but that's clearly changed. Yeah, today. that that's clearly changed, and so what it means is that we simply cannot compete in, in uh, basic manufacturing or anything even services you know you talk about doing routine legal services. they do that in India, any place they speak English, mm-hmm. call centers and so on. So globalization has been a very very important uh, factor and we're dealing with the, we're dealing with the aftermath of that right now.
1: So let, <clears throat> let's along those lines let's talk about demographics and retiring baby boomers. What does that mean for the overall economy? What does that mean for job possibilities and, <clears throat> and wages?
0: Well, what's interesting about that is that is that people are retiring. As a matter of fact, the reason the unemployment rate has come down uh, is uh, is is basically the people dropping out of the labor force. What,
1: what percentage of the fall from ten point whatever to five point one percent unemployment is people leaving the, la- way, the labor force? Well,
0: let's put it this way: if you didn't have, if you hadn't had the, if you hadn't had this participation rate, which is anybody sixteen and over who's either at working or actively looking for work, if you hadn't had that decline from the peak in February of 2000, the unemployment rate today would be 13%, not really. Not not. Uh, uh, so that 5%. many people
1: have left the workforce yeah, now, but cert- are
0: still of working well, age? Well, no, 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 that's everybody. Now, we, we've okay. done a lot of work on that, and about 60% of that are people are, older, are uh, people retiring, the post-war babies retiring, right. but 40% are middle-aged people uh, who've said, you know, I can't find a job, and, of course, a lot of younger people who said, I'm going to stay in college. I hope I get a better job. Of course, a lot of them came out with big debts, but no better job prospects. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating about this with older people, and you're talking about retiring post-war babies, the participation rates of people uh, 65 to 74 have gone up. Still
1: pretty good, right? They're, yeah. lower,
0: they're lower than younger people, but they're going up and over 75. Now, why is that? Two reasons. One is people are in better health. They're living longer. They want to stay active. Sure. But also, a lot of people simply do not have the assets to retire. Right. So you're getting some very interesting dynamics with, within that. But but the bottom line is there are a lot of people out there now training, having the the, the, the skills to take jobs. That's another issue. But if, if you assume if you get people properly trained, there's, there's really no shortage of labor in the foreseeable future.
1: Huh? That's amazing. So let's talk along related lines. Let's talk about productivity gains and indirectly automations. What is the impact of, like in my office, I know we, we're six, seven, <clears throat> we're now seven people, we're about to be eight people. I know that to do what we do 30 years ago would have taken <clears throat> 50 people. And thanks to computer technology and software, each person does we don't have a bookkeeper. We outsource that to yeah, a, a, yeah. an accountant who looks at stuff quarterly, who sees everything online. A lot of the stuff that we used to do with an assistant and a secretary, we that's all automatic. It's all done on the on the everybody types. It's not like you can be an executive oh, who doesn't yeah. type. Oh, yeah. oh, and so you're doing entering everything into the into the computer, and then when you look at different tools like like what we get from Salesforce as an example, as a sales management, a CRM tool, that would have been somebody's full-time job. And now it's one piece of software for eight people. It's amazing how much more productive each of us are. What does that do to, to, to job creation? Well,
0: uh, <laughs> you know, the whole, I- the whole idea of industrialization, ever since the Industrial Revolution started in England and New England in the late 1700s, was that it destroys a lot of jobs. You know the you know the, the origin of the word saboteur? Okay. Sabbat it comes from sabbat which were wooden shoes. Mm-hmm. And early in the Industrial Revolution, the workers who wore wooden shoes would grind them in the machines, wreck the machines because it was putting people out of work. Mm-hmm. They wanted to go back to hand weavers. In other words, you've always had this specter of of the destruction of, of jobs by automation. But what has happened of course is it's created more jobs mm-hmm. and higher level jobs and higher pay jobs with with more productivity and that's the basis of living standards we've come to a we've come to a bit of a gap recently with globalization that's one of the reasons i think globalization is so important because it's given you this huge gap in other words more rather than a gradual increase in this transfer and 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 upgrading and so on and Getting rid of the secretaries and the in-house accountants and all the stuff you mentioned—that's uh, happened overnight—and mm-hmm. it has simply left a lot of people in the U.S. and other Western uh, Western economies uh, who who simply are are not making that transition and
1: not prepared to yeah, adapt. And, and
0: it may be a generational deal. And I don't think it's the end of the world, but it is a it is almost a a, a quantum shift shift there because of, of globalization.
1: So so you mentioned that as we've gone through the industrial era and as we've seen um, more and more heavy manufacturing, put people out of work, but at the same time create other jobs, <laughs> when we look at technology, tech, especially uh, biotech, internet, uh, computer technology, the amount of job loss that that's created, is that really going to be offset by new and related jobs? in that space because that's the big concern of a lot of people is that there are people who are creating software creating technology that allows each person to do so much more you've eliminated a huge swath of jobs well
0: the jobs are being created just where that where are they geographically in other words are they in this country uh, or are they in China and now low end manufacturing moving on from China to lower cost areas Bangladesh Vietnam Pakistan and so on. Well, we see the
1: iPhone which is designed in the in the United States, right. designed in San Francisco, but essentially it's manufactured in China with components and other parts right. made all over right. the world, but the bulk of which are in low-cost uh, countries. That's right. So what is uh, and yet there's also an app economy where all these software designers and all these people are making a whole run of different software to put on that that work pretty much anywhere, but they're mostly the United States, um, Europe, India, Japan, places like that. So is that technology creating more jobs and it destroys? It's, cre-
0: it's creating more jobs, and of course it's it's adding to income polarization because those are- Better those jobs. Are, those, yeah. Those are, those are high-skilled jobs. Those are high-paid jobs but you, what you've eliminated are these you know, auto factories in this country that employ right. 5,000 people, that, that's out. Now, one of the interesting things coming out of this, and particularly with what's going on right now, we've had eight years of basically no real income growth in the US and really Europe, Japan, the, the, the developed world. In other words, mm-hmm. adjusted for inflation, no, no growth. People get frustrated after a while of that, and what's happening? We're beginning to see that expressed politically, for example, in France, the National Front, headed by this woman uh, Marie Le Pen, she may be the next president of, of France. It's a very you may very, end
1: up with Bernie Sanders or Donald Bernie, Trump and in and the that's United the point, States and in,
0: in the U.S. and and of course uh, John Boehner. You know, in other words, finally this, said he'd had enough and he's done. There's gone. this reaction to politicians in the center and looking at the fringes. U.K. the head of the uh, new head of the Labour uh, Party. I mean, you're getting very interesting expressions of this. Uh, and of course, you, you know, we're not talking about French revolutions now where people out there tear down the Bastille, but it is a, it is a similar kind of impulse. And, and we could get some very interesting political ramifications. So we this. just saw that in Greece with Cyprus well, yeah, getting reelected. Oh yeah, you a far re-elected. right and a far left coalition. I mean, Although I will
1: stream. tell you the craziest <laughs> thing. So we're recording this uh, in the beginning of fall, 2015. So we don't know the outcome of the election for any of you in the future listening to this. We don't know a lot of things. But one of the things that I find fascinating is when you look at the shocking and sudden rise of Donald Trump, politically, he's much more centrist than either the bulk of the Republicans on the right and the bulk of the Democrats on the left. I'm amazed that when you strip away the bluster He's kind of a centrist, old school politician. How did, who would have saw that coming a few years ago? Yeah,
0: but ago? it, you know, it's the hell raising aspect. It's like, what was that movie, Network News, where the guy goes, sure. you know, I, I'm not going to take it anymore. That is hell, I'm not going to take yeah, it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's that, it's that same, kind of, it's same kind of reaction, and that's what he's, Bernie Sanders, I mean, of course, he's way to the left, but it's that same kind of a, same kind of appeal. It's kind of a saying, the centerist politicians have not solved the problems we gotta do something else. And and there's a there's a big hearing for that kind of thing. So this is a this is a this is a kind of a cycle within the cycle, if you want to use cycles, and we talked about mm-hmm. whether they're relevant or not. But you've had you've had globalization going on for you know about three decades. But now in the in the aftermath of the global Great Recession, oh seven, oh nine, we're having this period of slow growth. It's I call it the age of deleveraging. No, uh, no growth in real incomes, mm-hmm. and and as a result, I think the combination of these things is putting a lot of pressure on the political system, and, and the conventional politicians really don't know how to react to this.
1: So let me ask you a question about that, I, I and I am not sure where I pulled this number from, but there was some news article out not too long ago that said the middle class has not seen in real terms, um, I forget nominal terms, but in real terms, has not really seen wage gains since 1973.
0: I think that's. I think that's. I think that's probably valid. Yeah. If, if you look that's at. amazing. If you look at, at real wages at, and, uh, you know, that pretty much is that. Because their insurance costs or, or, are up or and median ed- real uh, family income. That's that's what those statistics show you. And and uh, you know the growth has has come on 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 the top. There's a lot of income redistribution to look people on the bottom, and you know people can say, oh, this is this is terrible. And of course the Pope is. That was his theme uh, as as well. But, you know, you say if you if you have rapid growth, if you have a dynamic economy, it is going to sort out uh, the people who have the skills in order to participate. Uh, you, you look at China. Look how many billionaires are in China. And you say, well, yeah, but this is a country with an average income of, what, about a sixth of what we have. right? But yet, when you see dynamic growth, the, the the people who take it, now you can say, well, that's not that's not equal distribution but that's a judgment call that's not a market right. call
1: so what does the united states need to do to sort of restart that economic engine and go from forget 5% how about going from 2% to over 3% well
0: i i think i think to a certain extent it's really just a matter of of having patience and letting this whole Agent V leveraging and run its course. Now, so I am, once
1: people are no longer buried with yeah. debt they picked up in the last yeah, that's cycle,
0: right. that's right. And activity I, I'm picks convinced up after that. We are going to see a return to rapid growth, and it will be led by uh, by technology and, and productivity. So you're opt for
1: a guy who says the bond bull market
0: is still here. You're fairly optimistic. Oh, I am in the long run very much so, and one of the reasons is my basic philosophy. You know, I mean, right now the easy long term. Uh, forecast to sell is slow growth forever. Right. Because everybody looks around and says, that's what I see right on, brother. You look at people <laughs> like uh, like uh, Bob Gordon, professor at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. He's going around saying everything that is really productive, that's worth inventing, has been invented. Modern, Malthus- By the way, we've heard that throughout the centuries, yeah. and it's always been yeah. wrong. Modern Malthusian. And it sells right. very well. Neil Ferguson at Harvard, uh, things are being dragged down by... Dragged down by regulation and so on, Larry Summers, you know, no by, by productivity, demographic.
1: Ferguson should stick to history. He's a terrible economic commentator. <coughs> Every time he talks about economics, he manages to get something. Well, it's not majorly his, wrong. Not his
0: native feel. But what right. I'm what I'm saying, Barry, is that that's the easy sell, and in, you know, I, it's I'm appealing. Always, I'm always, yeah, it's yeah, and I'm always looking. For you know, where's the hidden flaw? That that's 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 how I made my career is looking for where's where's the wh- why is it going to go wrong? And in this case, you know, for example, they say that uh, uh, Gordon says uh, that the internet and so on is 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 finished. Computers, it's all realized. I think those things are more in their infancy than there are. Fully I couldn't developed. agree more. I mean, just just give you a couple of examples. The the, the American Industrial Revolution started in the late 1700s. Mm-hmm. Grew like topsy but it didn't get big enough to move the economy until after the Civil War. I mean, it- it, it, 75 years later. Yeah, yeah. Railroads, again, they started late 1700s, not until the latter half of the 19th century. I mean, it takes a long time for these things and, you know, the, you, you look at, uh, you and I have a cell phone. I mean, this has got more computer power than a IBM 360, this, this little gadget in your pocket. <laughs> I, I jokingly tell people there's <laughs> yeah, more I mean,
1: computing power on this than took man to the moon with yeah, the lunar rover. I mean, it really right is. And and, and, and I was a, looking, I
0: was taking some pictures and here I am on our beach house here, or, you know, at home around it. I've got just where it, it records where it is. I mean you say Big Brother it knows where you are but right. but it's but, a setting know, you can either but, turn but that but off I, or leave you know, it on. My my opinion that we are more in the infancy than we are finished on these new technology biotechnology I think is is much much more in its infancy and, and, and what that is going to do for productivity growth in the future. Now again, you got to have people who have the right training, but you know one of the problems we have in this country one of the problems we have in this problem, uh, country, and it's just a different topic, but I think related, is the education system. For sure. And 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 you know we have the attitude, um, we have the attitude that everybody ought to go to college. Mm-hmm. And it is true that people with college educations make more than high school grads. But you can't prove causality with statistics. I guarantee you positively, absolutely, every time there's a total eclipse of the of the sun, if you go outside and beat a drum, it will go away. 100% Look. correlation, no causality. Right. The reality is, in my view, smart people go to college, but college doesn't make you smart.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I think we need to recognize that and say, okay, there are a lot of people who can have very credible jobs. Hey, what's the last time you hired a plumber to clean out a toilet and he charged you 100 bucks for 15 minutes work? Right. I mean, you know, there are a lot of jobs that are not college educations, but they're certainly very credible. There's 600,000, estimates are there's 600,000 jobs going begging now for people with computer skills to work in factories. Uh-huh. And one of the things that's happening to solve that is the Germans, they have a very strong uh, apprenticeship program history. They brought a lot of their plants into the Southeast in this country. And they have these apprenticeship programs combined with two-year community college degrees. Mm-hmm. And these guys come out, and they're very well paid. And American companies are emulating that same kind of thing. So I think that's one of the most exciting things in education. And this isn't saying everybody and, – and, you know, we have a college for any, for any intellectual capability in this country. Look at the – for-profit colleges absolute disaster total they debacle. wouldn't exist without government subsidies and it is just a waste of money oh, they
1: came about on their own to beginning there was a huge movement <clears throat> for the private sector can do this on their own and once they figured out they could suckle off the teat of Uncle Sam. Well, they were
0: all over it. Oh, sure. And they're sure, a debacle. Sure. Man. And you know, as an entrepreneur, okay, why not? <laughs> you know, you know, uh, it's, we it's, know where it's, it it's making the up. money, money the old-fashioned way: skill, luck, clairvoyance, brains, hard work, and so much government subsidy you can't miss. Right. <laughs> I
1: mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> Until they collapse under their own weight. So, but, so
0: you're really a pretty optimistic guy about the future of America. I am. I am. I am. I think we've got to get through this. This, this deleveraging how uh, long does it last how well, long does normally the, you know if you look at the uh Rogoff data it I was takes waiting 10, for you to go there it goes 10 years now they are that data is over centuries it's developed countries it's banana republics it's a lot of apples and oranges How and about recently and in developed
1: countries but right
0: now right well recently you know, if you go back to the 30s, it was about 10 years. Mm-hmm. We're eight years into this now. At the rate we're going, it may take longer than another two years to complete. Mm-hmm. But I'm convinced it it will be uh, 12
1: maybe, years, 15 years, Give maybe me the something
0: that. Yeah, if you use if you use a straight line, the financial sector in this country's probably got another uh five or six years ago the consumer working off excess debt's probably uh, maybe a little bit longer, maybe seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. But that's just drawing straight lines on the So you're graph. guessing
1: we're halfway through yeah, the leverage. I, I would guess so.
0: And as I mentioned earlier, the one of the really interesting questions is is our is the electorate going to have the patience to go through this or are we going to get a reaction? Are we going to get some oddball uh in, in oddballs in Congress and administration? Are we going to see a big push for government stimulus, mm-hmm. and if we do, I think it'll be fiscal. It won't be monetary because well, you know, right? We've already. Know,
1: I think we've exhausted the monetary. Yeah, uh, stimulus yeah. Pushing on point. the string. And well, it, that's the traditional. Listen, following the uh, Great Depression, even following the 2000 recession, we saw a huge surge of fiscal stimulus. Yeah. That's been more or less missing this go round. What What would the impact of that be to the deleveraging process?
0: Well, it it. Uh, I don't know that it would it would necessarily reverse it. I mean, uh, but it it could mitigate it. It could it speed could speed it up a little it bit. Could speed it up a little bit. Yeah, it could speed it up. Um, I just want
1: my roads paved. You know, people accuse (laughs) me of being, um, well, well, you're a big government guy. No, no, I'm tired of replacing axles. I want, you know, my run flat tires show up as flat because there are so many potholes. Well, you know,
0: that's a a big difference between monetary and fiscal policy. Monetary policy is a very blunt instrument. Mm -hmm. The Fed and other central banks can raise and lower interest rates. They can buy and sell securities. That's it. Right. And beyond that, the ships fall where they may. And you don't really see that immediately. Yeah. The ships fall where they may. Fiscal policy can be pinpointed. If you want to improve the roads you put money into road construction. Right. If you want to help the unemployed, you increase unemployment benefits. It, it can be very, very specific. It doesn't say it's going to be efficient. It doesn't say it's going to be... It's I'd like be- our
1: electrical grid to be upgraded. It's yeah. it's yeah. terrible. It'd be nice if our ports were secure. We know that they're still vulnerable yeah. to foreign uh, or terrorist
0: attacks. Well, you and I are on the same page there. I, I think infrastructure is, is really... And if you go,
1: if you travel to Asia or Europe, our cellular system is awful. And our broadband, where we essentially created this technology, we're now the back of the but we are terrible compared, forget Korea who kicks our butt. Most of Europe is three to five times faster than us and cheaper. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. All right. So I know I only have you for a few more minutes. Let me go through some of my favorite questions to ask uh, people, and we'll get you out of here on time. Okay. Um, so before uh, before you came to Wall Street, you mentioned you were working for Standard Oil. What what did you do for them? What I, was your pre-Wall Street experience? Like?
0: I, I was an economist there. They had what was called a general economics department. They had uh, economists that covered various segments of the world. I was in charge of the U.S. and, and Canada in terms of forecasting and analysis of, of the economy. And that was a time when um, the uh, major corporations—they uh, had two things they knew they had to have. You couldn't go to lunch with your fellow CEOs and other wizards without having them. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know what to, what to do with either one. And one was econo- economists, and the other was computers. <laughs> that's a, that, that's fascinating. So from that you decided. <laughs> from that, that I from that I decided. Uh, you know, and Standard Oil was a is a huge co- company, obviously well-run company. It's going to be there forever, but was fairly bureaucratic and I wanted to imagine a little more active and that's why I went left for Wall Street
1: so so let's talk a little bit about some of your early mentors who really influenced your you mentioned the professor at Amherst who impacted yeah. your your career clearly a mentor who else was a mentor of yours um, who influenced your thinking
0: <laughs> I'm not sure I could name I you know I thought about that uh, earlier we talked about that and I'm not sure I could I could mention. I mean, I I never, for for better or worse, Barry, I don't think I ever had had uh, the, the the mentor. So let me ask. Let me rephrase that
1: question slightly differently. What books throughout your lifetime have you found
0: especially influential? Um, I guess some of the some of the basic books on the economy and and, uh, uh, but I think it's been more. The philosophical aspects and some of the some of the uh, some of the great thinkers who give us some examples. You mentioned Milton Friedman earlier.
1: Yeah, certainly. I know you don't agree Kane's, with everything he well, said. Well, you
0: know, Keynes had a lot of interesting things. No to doubt say. about that. Um, um, uh, my two uh, thesis advisors at Stanford, uh, uh, Ed Shaw and Jack and Jack Early, they came up with the idea that money pervaded in finance and everything had a degree of money, even insurance policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I can't say that I really studied under, you know, one great mentor and uh, that or, made or all another. the difference. So, So let's talk about the financial industry.
1: <laughs> Obviously, a lot has changed since you first joined Wall Street back in the late 60s. What do you think is the most significant shift we've seen in finance over the past 40
0: years uh, it's probably the proliferation of financial instruments uh when i when i got in uh to merrill lynch and that was in 1967 you had fixed commission rates um, mm-hmm. everything was pretty well regimented no uh, competition no n- yeah no real competition as we know it today Regulation. I mean, they even had res- resale, uh, uh, fixed retail prices. You couldn't go mm-hmm. into a store and buy, you know, couldn't buy a tube of toothpaste where the price wasn't fixed in many cases. Uh, but and that's I, think, all, that's essentially I, I think what's gone. happened is, uh, uh, first, of, first, first of all, you have opened things up with allowing competition starting with May Day and a fixed commission race in 1975. And then also the um, proliferation of computers and and ability to trade and moving away from individual securities. I remember Merrill Lynch, uh, their trading operation, it looked like a racetrack Mm. uh, where they had these belts that went around in a a big U and a guy would take an order and he'd stick it in – in this track and would go around to the guy on the other side who would process it. I mean, you know, it's it
1: it, now you push a button
0: and it's Yeah, I mean, you know, museum and well and not only that, we're at the point now where these guys want to be it's so fast that they want to be a as short a distance physically uh, from that now. High frequency traders. Uh, 186 thousand miles a second. Okay, but they want to be uh, half a mile closer. I, I mean, because the electrons don't travel that fast. But you know, I mean, e, e, that that kind of thing has has really. And, if and, you
1: remember the beginning of the Big Short, if you met that book by Michael Lewis, they yeah, talk about yeah. all of these high frequency trading op uh, brokerage firms <laughs> that locate just outside of the Holland Tunnel. Yeah, right. So they're the closest to the feed. From yeah, from yeah, Wall Street, that's, that's exactly what I and then about. these guys from Chicago laying a fiber optic cable yeah. in a dead straight line, didn't care what was in the way, mountains, houses, yeah. just yeah. buy it and blow through it. And now they're replacing that with, you know, over the air microwave point to point broadcast, so you don't even have to lay fiber optic. You can just go. You have to have a series of jumps because the curvature of the Earth gets in the way. But that's how important speed was to those guys. Yeah, and
0: and and the question is, are we Able to handle this uh, in terms of the effects of this, and we've seen this with, you know, fat, uh, eighty-seven uh, uh, stock market nosedive, S and P down twenty-two percent in one one day. We've seen it with flash crashes in two thousand and ten and yep. bonds, and more uh, recently we yeah, saw and, that with the ETF crash. Right, and and yeah, and and the question is, are we? Are we really up to speed with with this? And and then you have a, a much better question, and this goes back to a lot of what we talked about, about automation and so on. Has that made us any better decision makers? I'll tell you one, 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 uh, one book that I always read, it's a whole bunch of them, it's, it's Shakespeare. I'm a great fan of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And you go back and you say you know first of all that guy said things in an elegant way that none of us, you know right. every, the best line I've ever written he's going to be is, big one is day. is, is, uh, is uh, worse than the worst line he ever wrote but you look at these and you say has anything really changed are we making any better decisions with all this technology and speed I'm not sure we have and does this this mean that it's given us more confidence? That we're you know we're <laughs> we're going bad and with more confidence than before. I mean, because you think well, all that data is available and so on. And so, forth. I'm not sure that that we're able to synthesize that data any better. And and of course, everybody else has the same data. And are you any better off really in it, terms it, of forecasting? You, you know, you're a forecaster. I'm a forecaster. Are we making better forecasts than we did 20 years ago? Well, we I like, am, I
1: but know. um, it feels to me that all this technology <clears throat> and all this high speed um. Not specialists, not people who have an obligation to make an orderly market. It makes it feel like the market structure is a little less stable, or a lot less stable. Well, I
0: think that I think that's true. And 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 you really say is that is that simply part? Is that part of the you know? Does that go with the territory? And you just have to expect these periodic uh, uh, glitches and 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 and. Uh, you know the puke point. You reach that occasionally. Is it? Right. Is this just is part of the whole deal, and you you live with it? And I say that's that's part of the deal. But but you know the the thing about finance is <clears throat> finance fundamentally the justification for finance is to grease the wheels of commerce. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, if we had a barter system, it'd be pretty if it would be pretty rough. Right. Uh, Too much friction much in of, every transaction. And, and that's what finance is. But I think finance, and particularly leading up to the. Uh, collapse in in 2008 a lot of those guys felt they were an end of themselves mm. and their only their only job was to make money uh, and and they didn't really think about are we contributing anything are we improving productivity are we are we uh, making it possible for investments uh, uh to get to get productive things done in the economy and I, I think there's I think there's a lot of sight been lost of of, of what the ultimate game was ultimate objective of finance is i
1: couldn't i couldn't agree more so that's historically looking back let me ask you um next question what do you see as the next important shifts in finance going forward
0: um oh gosh it's probably got to do with globalization um so no more, uh, l- less of an impact of, of national borders than you have. Common. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, 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 mean the, the technology is there and yet you do have, you still have, uh, you know, separate regular regulations, separate exchanges. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of, uh, particularly in Europe where they're trying to combine this, but uh, on a, on a global basis, but you know, when, when money can move around, uh, move, uh, around at the touch of a touch of a keystroke, um, the idea that you're moving into different regulatory jurisdictions because guys are always going to try to game the system. They're going to mm-hmm. look for the lowest regulatory climate, and I think that's probably something that's we're going to see is a lot more uh, global control of of uh, financial flows. Not not control in the sense of Big Brother, but just common regulation so that it's it's all under the same uh, uh, all under the same uh, uh, regulatory framework.
1: So, so we're down to my last two favorite questions, and, and let me ask you this. So the millennials, the people who are just graduating <clears throat> college who we were discussing earlier, if one of them approached you and said, Gary, uh, I'm interested in a career in finance, what advice can you give me? What would you tell them?
0: <laughs> uh, other than to other than become a great economist, of course— uh, I I would I would probably advise them to try to find an area where you are doing something that's productive, and you're not just a glorified shuffler of paper uh, trading. Uh, and trading is important; it, it it lubricates the system. But but trading just for the sake of making money I mean you, you look at you look at corporate finance. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back, uh, you know, take Goldman Sachs. That used to be an investment banking house, mm-hmm. and and their job was to their job was to uh, work with clients and to raise money for them to do uh, investments and productive things, and it was a win-win situation. Uh, the the client got the got the uh, uh, issue placed. Uh, investors uh, were satisfied with it most of the time, and. And uh, the investment banker got a, a fee. Okay, now what Wall Street is involved in is the trading houses, mm-hmm. and that isn't a win-win situation. It's a zero-sum game. Right. There's a winner and a loser,
1: There's a winner and it's and a loser. not like every. It's not yeah. like the pie is getting bigger. Yeah. It's just how it's now. Divided. I
0: don't think if I were advising somebody, I'd say I don't think you ought to be in that uh, in that uh, zero-sum game business because I somehow. Well, I I don't think it's. Uh, you know what whether it just makes a lot of money for you and you and you move to the hamptons and so on but That's it's not, not fulfilling and it's but, not productive. But i'm not sure i'm not sure how sustainable that is
1: mm-hmm. and then my final question what is it that you know about investing and finance and economics today that you wish you knew when you began way back in the 1960s
0: hmm Uh, it's probably a lot more respect for the unknowns out there, hmm. and the vicissitudes of nature, and the realization that the best-laid plans of mice and men gang off of a That you can, that you can have a, a great forecast, and all the fundamentals fall into place, and markets just simply do not confirm it. And the way I put it is. Markets can remain irrational a lot longer than we can remain solvent. I've, I've heard that somewhere.
1: Well, Gary, thank you so much. This has been a delight. Um, if people want to find your your newsletter or your research, how do they go about uh, tracking you down? Well,
0: they can track us down. Uh, it's uh, our website, www.agaryshilling.com. Com.
1: And you now have a Twitter handle,
0: I noticed. Oh, yes. Oh, of course. And you got to have that.
1: And it's the same, uh, same it at is. A. It Gary is. Schilling. Right, right. Fantastic. Right. Well, thank you for spending so much time with us today. Uh, you've been listening to Masters in Business. If you <clears> enjoy this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, and you'll see the other 60 or so podcasts we've had. Let me make sure to say thank you to my head of research, Mike Batnick, and my producer, Uh, Charlie Vollmer. Uh, Be sure and check out all the rest of our other interviews. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.